I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, and we're going to start reading in verse 13. If you've been here for the last two weeks, as Jason's preached the first 12 verses of Acts 13, you've probably thought to yourself, why do we need this guy here now? I mean, Chad, you've done your job. Move on. Let's keep Jason every week. He's done a great job, and so it's been incredibly encouraging to hear the word from him. But we're going to pick up in verse 13, because by the Lord's good providence, you're stuck with me. Verse 13, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we read and consider and study, examine this 
really first recorded evangelistic sermon of the Apostle Paul. This sermon that in so many regards repeats what Peter had been preaching at Pentecost. This sermon which so clearly tells us the gospel that was promised, how the gospel was fulfilled, and what the gospel is. This sermon which lays out for us what was the message of the apostles and continued to be the message of Paul, not only in Acts but throughout his epistles, the gospel of our salvation in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray as we study this that your spirit would be at work driving home into our hearts how great a salvation we have. The importance of the gospel, how quickly we slip from it. How this great, glorious word, in fact, the greatest of all words spoken, this gospel word of Christ, is a word that Satan means to deceive us with regard to, to distract us from. Father, we pray that we would be as relentlessly committed to it as, as was Paul. Your son would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I want you to do something just as we begin. I want you to keep your hand in Acts 13, and if you will, look with me briefly at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we see in 1 Corinthians 15, if you're not familiar, you're in Acts, go to Romans and 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lays out what his gospel message is, and, and frankly, in very much a parallel structure is what he lays out here in Acts 13. But I, while I'm not going to expound for you 1 Corinthians 15, I want you to see something Paul says at the very beginning of it. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers... Of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. I want to remind you of the gospel, the one I preached to you, the one you received and believe, the one in which you stand, the one by which you're saved. I want to remind you of the gospel. And he goes on in verse 3 and says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, in other words, the Old Testament. Verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, that's the rest of the apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. In other words, Paul's saying is, I want to remind you of this gospel. Here are the simple facts. God promised he would send Jesus. He promised Jesus would die for your sins. He promised Jesus would resurrect from the dead. And all those things happened, and we all saw him resurrected. We saw those things, they happened. That's the gospel. That's what saves you. That's what you received. I want to remind you of it, brothers. Now, it's, it's interesting because we want, might wonder, why does Paul need to remind us of such a simple set of basic facts? I mean, this isn't a lot to remember. God promised to send a Savior in the Old Testament. The Savior came. God promised the Savior would die for our sins on the tree. He did. God promised the Savior would raise from the dead. He did. And then he appeared to us and we saw him. That gospel that Jesus brought about in his cross and resurrection saves you. Okay, that's a pretty simple set of facts. Why do I have to be reminded of them? Because this gospel is constantly under attack by Satan. That's why. Be very clear. As Satan slithered into the garden and deceived Adam's wife, so he slithers into the church and deceives the bride of Christ. Every chance he gets. Now Satan doesn't often labor in the open. He doesn't announce his intention to divert your minds to a different gospel. He doesn't come looking like a wolf ready to consume the sheep. He doesn't come as an angel of darkness, but rather as an angel of light. He doesn't come as a messenger from Satan. He comes as a messenger of the Lord. He comes, in other words, as Paul often says, as an elder in your church, as a pastor of a congregation, 
as a Christian leader. That's how he comes. That's the clear warning in Acts chapter 20 when Paul says to beware, brothers, because there's going to come up one from among you. Be on the alert. He's speaking to the elders who will lead people away. One of the elders is going to rise up. This is what Satan does. You might say, do those leaders who lead others astray always know that they're a wolf? No. Paul says that they're often deceived and deceiving. They both themselves are deceived and they're deceiving others. But the fact is, there it is. Satan is at work diverting us from the gospel of our salvation. I personally have three fairly recent experiences of seeing this reality in in really three different realms of Christian ministry. By the grace of God, I'm involved in in more than, or have been involved in more than one realm of Christian ministry. I've been involved in the Christian Academy. I've actually taught at a Christian college. I've been involved in Christian missions, actually helped found a, a missions organization. And I've been involved in the Christian church as a pastor and a net, with networks of other pastors. And in all three realms, I've seen diver, diversion from the gospel. Let me give you a few examples. In the Christian Academy, I was teaching at a Christian college. I had taught at it before years ago. And Started teaching at it again a couple of years ago. I taught um, two courses there, one on the Pauline epistles and one on the Holy Spirit the same semester. I would go all day for the day and teach um, two different groups of students, but I would teach for several hours. And John Bryant, one of our pastors, would come with me. And as I'm going through Paul's epistles, of course, I'm getting to the gospel a lot. And as I'm preaching the gospel of, of the forgiveness of sins and justification or declaration of righteousness, I am not kidding you when I say that after every class, in every break, and at every lunch period, students came up to me. Every student, without exception, in both of my classes, came up to me and said, what is this gospel you're preaching? Now, my first year freshman students, I thought, okay, maybe they haven't been taught, they've come to a Bible college, they just got saved, they don't really know the details. Okay, I'll give it a pass. But my third year, second semester juniors, who at this point had gone through all the Bible starting in Genesis and were now in Paul's epistles, had never heard the gospel. Never. They were stunned by it. They made, a lunch, they made lunch appointments with me and John because they had never heard it. They had been taught something completely different. Now, what were they believing? Well, I had noticed that every commentary they had been reading was written by N.T. Wright, and every single one, and they were believing something that's quite popular today called the new perspective on Paul. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but here's what I want you to understand. There's a baseline idea that they were holding to. There's a thing called initial justification and a thing called final justification. Initial justification is where I believe in Christ and I'm justified initially, but on the basis of my works, I'm finally justified. Did you hear that? On the basis of my works, I receive final justification. Not on the basis of Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness, if you will, gets me initial justification, but final justification is on the basis of my works. And we're not talking about just like, well, you're vindicated that your faith is actually true. We're talking about actual justification. And so I challenged that and uh, ended up asking the president of the college and the academic dean of the college, uh, what, whether or not I was off base for this college, and they um, sent me the college faculty statement, which in fact endorsed N.T. Wright's new perspective on Paul. And I read it, and I thought, well, you're endorsing this. They said, no, we're not. And so I said, okay, I'll send it to great scholars. I did. See if they think I'm crazy. They all came back and said the same thing. So we had a meeting. I went over it. I'm telling you, these guys could not tell me the difference between justification and sanctification. They could not tell me what it meant to be justified and what it meant to be sanctified and how those two things, while they are connected, they are different things. Justification is Christ saves me. Sanctification is that gets worked out in my life as I grow in holiness. But the getting worked out in my life as I grow in holiness does not save me. I'm saved, therefore it gets worked out in my life. I um, volunteered to leave, but this became so, so 
hostile at some point, though I had approached them privately, it got to other professors to the point where just two weeks ago a professor came up to me out of blue who I had never met before and said to me, I need you to know I've harbored hatred for you for years. I've never met you, you've never met me, you've never sinned against me, but I need you to know this, will you forgive me? Which I appreciated that, and I told him, oh, I appreciate this very much, I didn't need to know, you could have done that behind my back and just dealt with the Lord. But anyway, <laughs> you know, so second, Christian missions. Um, Radius International, when we started it, we started to train people to plant churches. And as we started doing that and working with various sending organizations, Radius does not send people, Radius trains people and then goes with sending organizations. We came to find that the dominant strategy being used by missions organizations, the dominant methodology is something called DMM or disciple-making movements. It is used almost without question by every sending organization. It started with leaders in the IMB, the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, though in fairness, not every missionary in the Southern Baptist Convention holds to it, but it started there. It's gone through lots of other sending organizations, and, and they teach a thing in DMM called obedience-based, catch this, obedience-based discipleship, not faith-based discipleship, not gospel-based discipleship, but the foundation of being a disciple is obedience. And they actually do that by saying, and this is in a book by the founder of it um, called Contagious Disciple Making, um, and, and he's also the guy who founded what's called Discovery Bible Studies. Um, he defines faith this way. Faith is defined as continuous acts of obedience. That's a direct quote. Okay, so now I want you to hear that. Faith is defined as continuous acts of obedience. So faith equals obedience, which means that you're justified by obedience in Christ. Hear that? Folks, if that swept the missions world. I preach a sermon at the Radius Conference, which many missions leaders said is the first critique that's ever happened of the group. It has swept the missions world. And if that's what's being taught in the missions world, then we might as well return to the Roman Catholic Church because their gospel is more gracious than that. It is. What was the response? The response is, well, what you're saying is true, but, but you're, you're causing disunity in the church by pointing it out. Not everybody agrees with you. In fact, the majority of scholars today disagree with you. Okay, so yes, I'm causing disunity in the church, and yes, if, if they say most of the scholars disagree with me. Okay. But that all avoids the, the question I'm asking, which is what is the gospel? Saying lots of people disagree with you and that causes problems doesn't answer the question, does it? What is the gospel? Third, the Christian church. I went to an event put on by a coalition of people that call themselves believers in the gospel, and I believe they are. They brought in a, a speaker. These are pastors, elders of churches. They brought in a speaker who proceeded to tell us that the gospel is, the gospel is that Jesus is the king and his kingdom is come, and that is the gospel. Hear that? Jesus is the king, and his kingdom has come. But in and of itself, it's true, Jesus is the king, his kingdom has come, and that in some way plays into the gospel, but in and of itself, the announcement that Jesus is the king and he's holy and his kingdom has come is not good news if you're not in that kingdom. Christ having a kingdom is not good news if you're not in it. Because that means you're in the kingdom of who? His enemies. And what will the good king do to his enemies? I sent a letter to the leadership of that organization and pressed back in hope that they might see the problem and found out that the problem they were seeing was me. Some of them admitted, by the way, to me that teaching is problematic, but concluded that the bigger problem is that I was harming the peace of the group. Mind you, I sent that letter privately to the leaders. As with everything God speaks, Satan is trying to twist the gospel, and as Adam stood by and watched his pride deceived, so some gospel ministers are standing by and watching the bride of Christ being deceived, and they're calling it unity. 
J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary, said this in 1930, by the way, as he watched Princeton go down the tubes and as he watched the Presbyterian Church USA, you know, the one that now endorses ordination of homosexuals, as he watched it go liberal. In 1930, he said this, now as in ancient times, Satan has preferred to labor for the most part in the dark. The changes come very quietly and very gradually. There have been few open breaks. There have been comparatively few open denials. Good men, in their ignorance, have often become emissaries of unbelief. The gospel has not been openly contradicted, but it has been quietly pushed aside. It has quietly faded away as one picture fades away before another on the screen, and another gospel has assumed its place. Many men are quite unconscious of the change. They are made very angry by being told the truth. Others are not so completely blind. They know in their heart of hearts that all is not well, but they will do nothing unpleasant to preserve the purity of the church. They preach the true gospel themselves, they say, but let others in the same church preach what they will. God will ultimately honor the truth, they tell us. God will ultimately destroy error, but meanwhile, let us above all have peace. Machen could have written that today. And frankly, folks, that could have been written in every era of the history of the church. So here's the question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel he reminded of? What did the apostles preach? Well, today we look really at Paul's first recorded sermon in Acts, his first recorded evangelistic sermon. The gospel Paul preached here, by the way, is the same gospel preached by every apostle. And it is the same gospel that Paul continually preaches. So look with me at Acts 13, 13, and we'll start to move through this text. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. So they sailed across, and notice what it says, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now we'll return to John leaving them and returning to Jerusalem in Acts 15. So I'm not going to deal with it. That's John Mark who leaves. We'll return to that. But Luke wants you to know this is where he left. We'll pick that back up at the end of Acts 15. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. So they came to notice this Perga, and then they cross over the mountains toward Antioch and Pisidia. That's not Antioch where the first church plant is. This is Antioch and Pisidia. There's more than one Antioch in the Roman world. This is the one in Pisidia. They travel, by the way, over 100 miles. So they land at shore. They're there for a short time, and they travel over 100 miles. They pass through other cities, but they don't stop and preach there. They go to Antioch and Pisidia and preach there. Now, why do they pass through the other cities? We don't really know. This is just all Luke tells us. This is what happens. They go there, and they begin to preach. Um, and it says this, But they went on from Perga to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, you might notice there are synagogues pretty much all over the Roman Empire. That's because they make up between 10 and 20% of the Roman Empire. Jews do make up between 10 and 20% of the Roman Empire. That's, that's a quite large percentage. Um, that's why everywhere they go, they run into Jewish synagogues. And they're there, and they go, and they, they sit down. And after the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So you understand what happens. In the synagogue, it was typical to give a benediction, and then after the benediction, to read from the Law and the Prophets, the Law being the first five books of Moses, if you will, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the Prophets being Joshua, right, starting with what we would call the historical books through what we would call the major prophets and the minor prophets, frankly. And then you would have the writings, which would be all the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, etc. So the law and the prophets are both the law books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five, and that what we call today the historic and prophetical books. That's, that's what they were reading from. So they would have readings from those, and after they had readings from those, if you notice what they did, they looked at um, the rulers of the synagogue, look at Paul and and Barnabas and say, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. 
It's likely that Paul was identified as a Jewish rabbi. If you remember, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, trained by Gamaliel. So he's probably identified as a Jewish rabbi. He's here now. He's able to teach from the Word. So if he has a word of encouragement, he ought to teach it. So he stands up to teach. And the question is, when Paul's given a chance to preach the gospel in Pisidia, Antioch, what is the gospel that Paul preaches? And as we look at this, I want to see three parts to Paul's sermon. The first part is the gospel promised. The second part is the gospel fulfilled. And the third part is the gospel defined. Hear that? The gospel promised, the gospel fulfilled, the gospel defined. So let's look first at the gospel promised. Look at verse 16 as Paul begins to preach. So Paul stood up. That's unusual unless you were a special guest speaker um, in some way generally. So Paul, usually they sat down to teach, but he stood up and motioning with his hand. It's a little bit like, okay, be quiet, listen now. Motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God. In other words, Jews and Gentile God-fearers, people who believe in the God of Israel, but they are not yet converts to Judaism. They haven't been circumcised. They haven't gone through that process. They are just God-fearers. So they're Gentile God-fearers. So men of Jerusalem or Israel, and what? You who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Now notice what he just did there. The God of people Israel chose our fathers. In that phrase, he just summed up Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 50. There, there you go. The God of his people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. That's Exodus chapter 1, 1 through 1, 7. Or through, 1, 1 through 7. And then look what it goes on to say. Made them great during the stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out. That takes you all the way through Exodus. So Exodus, Genesis 12 through 50, Exodus 1, 1 through 7, and then Exodus all the way through Exodus 15. Here we are. And after about 40 years, sorry, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. That's the summary of Exodus 16 through Exodus 40, really of Numbers, which furthers the history, Deuteronomy, some of the lessons that are in there, and Leviticus. So um, he sums up the rest of Israel's history up until Joshua as he put up with them in the wilderness. That's the summary. It's really complimentary, isn't it? Brothers, God chose our fathers, graciously chose them. You read about that, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then God made us great in the land of Egypt, and he took us out. He delivered us with a mighty arm. We were out, and then he put up with us for 40 years. And then he says, and after destroying seven nations, the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. That's, by the way, a summary of the book of Joshua. And look what he says. All this took about 450 years. 400 years in captivity, 40 years in the wilderness, 10 years in conquest in the land of the book of Joshua. Now he moves on. And after that, he gave them judges. You guys know the book of Judges, which comes after Joshua, until Samuel the prophet, which comes up in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, etc. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he removed him, he raised up David to be their king, whom he, of whom he testified and said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So here, between verse 16 and verse 22, Paul has surveyed the history of Israel, um, and he's covered approximately 850 to 1,000 years, okay, in six verses, to which you'd say, what's your problem for getting a sermon done, Chad? Uh, <laughs> right? Six verses. But he's doing this on purpose because he wants to drive at a central point. He's wanting to drive them through their history that God chose our fathers. He set his electing love on them and he did it for a reason and he's driving us to it where he sums it up really with he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my own heart who will do all my will, and then look at verse 23, of this man's, David's offspring, 
God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. See, that's the fulfillment of everything that's happening in the Old Testament to this point is that God has promised a Savior, a Savior who would come from the seed of Abraham, a Savior who would come from the offspring, or you will, the house of David, King David. And here he's come. He is this Davidic king, this Messiah, this Savior. But a Savior from what? See, that's the question. Great, God sent his Savior. He promised him throughout the Old Testament. But what is he a Savior from? What does he save us from? Not one person espousing the errors I mentioned earlier denies that Jesus is the Savior. But what does that mean? What does it mean? What does he save us from? Look what he goes on to say. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So now he's skipped over, if you will, from the period of the promise of David's son. He skipped over the period of kings, if you will, that come after David, including Solomon and following. He skipped over the exile. He skipped over um, the return from exile. He skipped over the 400 and something silent years, and he's driven you straight to John the Baptist's arrival on the scene and said John the Baptist came and he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, saying that we need to turn from our sins and prepare ourselves for the coming Messiah. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. In other words, I'm not the Davidic king that was promised. I'm not the Savior who was promised. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm not even, John the Baptist saying, I'm not even worthy to do the job of a slave in service to the Messiah. That's the job of a slave to tie the sandals. I'm not even worthy to that. So the Savior's coming, but a Savior from what? The announcement that God sent us a Savior King is not good news for us if we do not know what we are saved from. And before answering that, let's look at the second part of Paul's sermon, the gospel fulfilled. I just covered the whole Old Testament through John the Baptist inside of like 10 minutes. You should be pretty excited. Thank you, Paul. The gospel fulfilled. Verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among, whom, among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Note that Paul says the message of this salvation. Paul is saying that this Savior has come and now they have received this message of this salvation. In other words, the Old Testament gospel promise of this coming Davidic king who would save Israel has been fulfilled. Been fulfilled. How was it fulfilled? Look at verse, or chapter 13, verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, that's Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets. In other words, it's not that they didn't recognize him like they didn't know who he was. They knew he was Jesus of Nazareth. He was a son of Joseph the carpenter. They, they knew who he was. When it says they didn't recognize him, it doesn't mean they can't point him out like a perp in the perp lineup, right? What it means is, what it means by they didn't recognize him is they didn't recognize him for who he actually is. They didn't know who he really was. And it, says, it goes on to say, and what else did they not? They did not understand the utterances of the prophets. In other words, they didn't understand their own Old Testament. They didn't know it pointed to him. Look what it says. Which are read every Sabbath. Those prophets are read every Sabbath, and yet they still don't understand them. Boy, there's a warning in that for us, isn't there? Better pray the Holy Spirit gives you eyes to see and ears to hear. It wasn't because they were stupid or academically insufficient, uneducated, illiterate. It was because of a spiritual problem. Their eyes were blind, their ears were deaf because their hearts were hard. Look what it goes on to say. 
which are at every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. In other words, these Jews fulfilled the prophecies that they didn't understand because they condemned the Christ, which was prophesied would happen. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried all out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Notice, notice Paul's consistency here and in 1 Corinthians 15. He died according to the scriptures. Isn't that what he's saying? He was laid in a tomb. He rose according to the scriptures, etc. Israel, not understanding the Old Testament, was the instrument was the instrument through whom the Old Testament promises were fulfilled by putting the Savior King to death. They hung Jesus on the cross in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. He died for their sins there at their own hands. Now, now look at verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. And after... Many, and for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. Is that not what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 as well? God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus resurrected. He walked out of his tomb, and lots of people saw him. This is not a claim of purely subjective religious experience. They didn't experience the spirit of Christ. Paul is making an objective historical claim. Jesus really rose from the dead. We touched him. We saw him. We ate with him. We heard him talk to us. 500 other people saw him, including all the apostles. There is witnesses. Now look at 1332. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, hey, that's verses 16, if you will, all the way through 23. What God promised to the fathers, what? What he promised to the fathers, this, this he is what? He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. By raising Jesus. I, I, I want you to notice again that Paul is referencing the good news, the gospel. Notice that Paul says that God's Old Testament promise of the good news is fulfilled by God raising Jesus. In other words, the cross and resurrection of Christ are both fulfilling Old Testament promises and are both the fulfillment of the gospel promises of salvation. But what do the cross and resurrection accomplish? What is this salvation that God has promised and fulfilled in the cross and resurrection of Christ. Notice the Old Testament text that Paul points to in verse 33. As also it is written in the second psalm. This is, I think, the only place I can find, at least I've found in the New Testament, where the actual location of the, of the um, is said, the second psalm. Not just in the psalms, but the second psalm. Also is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now this is an interesting citation that is tied to the coming Davidic king. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Notice he's saying that this, this savior, this Messiah, is the offspring promised to David, and now it says, God declares him in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and he's saying that's fulfilled in the raising of Jesus. So what in the world is he talking about? Well, look at 2 Samuel, keep your hand there in Acts 13, and turn back to 2 Samuel in chapter 7. Now, if you don't have time to turn there, you can listen to me read it. But I, I, I encourage you to look there. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? What comes after that? Joshua, Judges, Ruth. First Samuel, Second Samuel, chapter 7. Into First Kings, Second Kings, etc. You've gone too far. First, Second Samuel, chapter 7, and verse 12, God is covenanting with David. Look what he says. When your days are fulfilled... And you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you. Notice that? Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom how long? Forever. It's an eternal throne. This son of David. I will be to him a what? A father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, let's keep reading. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man and with the stripes of the son of man, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. My hesed, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. See, Yahweh will be to David's greater son a father. And David's son will be to Yahweh a son. In other words, this eternal king who's coming from David's line will be in a father-son relationship with the Lord. So as Paul ties in Psalm 2, he is tying it together with this promise in 2 Samuel 7 and declaring that David's greater son, the messianic king, the offspring of David, is not just a son of the father, but the son of the father. The son of Psalm 2. Be careful here, though. Paul is not saying that Jesus was adopted as a son at his resurrection. He is saying that the resurrection has revealed Jesus' glory as the Son of God. The glory he had with the Father before the world began. Remember Jesus says that? I I want them to see, Father, the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Prior to the resurrection, Jesus' glory is largely concealed, isn't it? He's in a state of humiliation. He announces he's the son of God, but you see a man standing before you. At his resurrection, he was vindicated before all. He was exalted and his glory was revealed. He was seen to be who he was, who he is at his resurrection. That's why Romans 1.3, for example, can say that Paul's saying, you know, when he starts it out, he says, I'm an apostle, I'm, I'm, I'm a slave of Christ, I'm I'm set apart for the gospel of God, and he says, concerning his son. And then he goes on in verse 3 and says, who was descended from David according to the flesh. You hear that? Humiliation. And who was declared to be the son of God in power at his resurrection of the dead, or by his resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. In other words, at the resurrection the declaration has been made before all men. Christ's glory as the Son of God is revealed before all. That's why 1 Timothy 3.16 can say that, that he was vindicated in his resurrection before the angels. He's shown to be who he is. But I want you to notice that Paul has applied Psalm 2 to Jesus. Psalm 2 is the psalm, if you will, or the song of David about the Lord's messianic king destroying all his enemies, all those who stand opposed to him. But Psalm 2 concludes with this note, which I think Psalm 1 and 2 are driving at, which is this, blessed are all those who take refuge in the Son. And both these elements, the Son conquering of his enemies and saving of his people, are part of the gospel message. So now look at Acts 13.34. Acts 13.34 as he moves on. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Now this is a citation from Isaiah 55.3, which picks up also on the language of 2 Samuel 7. Remember, I will set my steadfast, sure love on him, the offspring of David. In other words, my hesed, my covenant of love, I'll set it on him. Now Isaiah 55.3 picks that up and says that God is going to set that sure, steadfast love, that hesed, that covenant of love on Israel. And here, Paul picks it up and says, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And he says this, At the resurrection of Jesus, God's sure, steadfast love for the greater son of David was being shown. Here's why. Can a dead king sit on an eternal throne? A dead king can't sit on on an eternal throne, right? 
Only a living king can sit on an eternal throne. So in promising steadfast love to David's son, God promised the resurrection of David's son. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. Now look at verse 35. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. That comes from Psalm 16. He's saying that's also fulfilled in Jesus. Why? Look what he goes on to say in verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. In other words, here's the thing. You can say that Psalm 16 is a song about David, but at the end of the day, David saw corruption. He died, he's still in his tomb. Christ rose from the dead. In other words, what Paul is telling you is that David was singing about his greater son, the messianic king who would raise. And he was promising you he would. David is dead and buried. He's seen corruption. Jesus rose from the dead. He walked out of the tomb. He never saw corruption. That's the same argument Peter makes in Acts 2. Same exact argument. Jesus is the Lord and the Messiah. He is the Savior King who was crucified according to Old Testament promise and resurrected according to Old Testament promise. But here's the problem we still have. How is that good news for us? See, Jesus is the Savior King. Savior from what? Why did Israel need the Savior King? I mean, was Israel's great problem Roman oppression? Why do I need the Savior King? I, am, I, am I being saved from my habits, hurts, and hang-ups? I hear that all the time from pastors. What's that about? Has he come to help me clean up the mess that is my life? Has he come to help me with my self-improvement project? Has he come to show me what a holy life looks like so that I might follow his example in obedience-based discipleship? Has he come to save me from my lack of purpose and meaning and provide purpose and meaning for me? Is he saving me from people who offend me and hurt me? Is he saving me from a bad marriage or unruly children or a crumbling culture or a declining nation? What is he saving me from? Has he merely come to be the righteous ruler that the world has lacked? And by the way, is it good news that a righteous ruler has come to a wicked people? Is having a righteous king even good news if you're not in his kingdom? How is the cross and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel, the good news? That leads to my third point, which I hope to get to quickly, the gospel defined. The gospel defined. Notice how Paul applies all this good news. Notice what it means that Jesus, the Savior King, was crucified and risen from the dead. Look at verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. He's just preached. Old Testament promised this. Christ came and fulfilled it. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, who's this man? Jesus. Through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Do you hear that? Through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That's what you need. You're a sinner in need of forgiveness. Standing before a holy God, you have sinned and you need forgiveness of sins. As Paul sums up all the Old Testament promise, all the New Testament fulfillment, and drives home the application to you, he says, what do you do with Jesus promised, crucified, resurrected? He says, you look to him because through him you receive forgiveness of sins. And he sums up for you what is the great reason that God sent his Messiah to save you from your sins. And the condemnation due to them. And look what he goes on to say. And by him, everyone who believes, and then notice the text said is freed from. I don't like this translation. The King James is better here because the word in the Greek is just dikaio, which is to justify. Everyone is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. You see, the law of Moses 
couldn't bring you declaration of righteousness. The blood of bulls and goats never remitted sin. Keeping the moral law of Moses was never a possibility for you by which you might earn perfect righteousness before God. You could never be justified by the law of Moses. Justification is only through him. That's the declaration of your righteousness. You're forgiven for your sins and declared to be righteous in Christ through him. Jesus offers you forgiveness of sins and justification. That, that folks, is the gospel. That's the good news. The problem is that your sin has left you guilty and condemned before God, and the wages of sin is death, and when you die in sin, you will be eternally condemned for your sins, and you need forgiveness. But what do you need forgiveness from? What do you need forgiveness from? God. Do you hear that? He is the one you sinned against. And before whom do you need to stand righteous? God. He is the holy judge. In other words, the gospel message is that God saved you in Christ from himself. And the righteous wrath due to you for your sins. Our sin has brought physical death and eternal condemnation from God. Our Savior has brought forgiveness of sins, declaration of righteousness, and eternal life. That's the good news. You are saved from God's wrath. In his wrath, God has turned us over to death. He has turned us over the deceptive grip of Satan to sin and its eternal consequences in hell. And God sent Jesus to save us from all that. Jesus conquered our enemies of sin and Satan and death at the cross and in his resurrection. Jesus' perfect, righteous life is credited to our accounts so that we might be reconciled to God. So how are you saved? You trust in the Savior, Jesus, whom God promised and sent to you. That's how. You look away from yourself and your sins, and you look to Jesus. You know, it's a verse that we often, we often, we hear so often, I think sometimes it just, it just runs right past us. We see it posted everywhere, and so we just kind of, we almost sometimes roll our eyes when someone brings it out as a simple summary of the gospel, but I, I want you to hear it in light of all this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the gospel, folks. That's the gospel. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that you would be at work by your spirit. Jesus, we ask that your spirit would be poured out upon us to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to receive the gospel of our salvation with joy, to look, Father, that we would look to your Son and him alone. Pray for those who don't believe that they would look to Jesus and believe. Pray for those of us who do, that we would not be quickly caught up in deception, that we would not be led astray, that we would be, rel be relentlessly focused on the gospel of our salvation, that our Lord Jesus Christ, by his cross and resurrection, as you promised from the beginning has saved us by bringing us forgiveness of sins and the declaration of righteousness in him. We pray that we would believe this, that we would ever rely on Christ, and that we would shout his name from the rooftops. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.